Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. And I'm Randy Sutton, your host, 34-year police veteran, the founder of the Wounded Blue, which is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers, the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. This show is dedicated to the mental, to the physical, to the spiritual wellness of the American law enforcement officer and the community. On this show, we talk about everything related to the, uh, the, the physical wellness and the, and the psychological and emotional wellness of law enforcement officers who are facing ever-increasing pressure and ever-increasing danger. Before I bring my guest on, we're going to have our reality check. On the reality check, I eulogize those officers who have lost their lives in the line of duty since our last episode, and unfortunately, I have two names to read today. The first is Special Agent Patrick Bauer of the United States Department of Treasury Internal Revenue Service, Criminal Investigation Division. Special Agent Patrick Bauer was inadvertently shot and killed while participating in a departmental training, uh, firearms training in Phoenix, Arizona. Members of the IRS Criminal Investigation and other federal agencies were using the shooting range at the Federal Correctional Institute, Phoenix, when Special Agent Bauer was inadvertently shot by another agent. He was transported to the Honor Health Deer Valley Medical Center where he succumbed to his wounds. He was a veteran of the Arizona Air National Guard and he survived by his wife and four children. Special Agent Patrick Bauer, United States Department of Treasury Internal Revenue Service, Criminal Investigation, United States Government, end of watch, Thursday, August 17th, 2023. And the next is Officer Brian Holly of the Hudson Independent School District in uh, uh, Texas. Officer Brian Holly suffered a fatal medical emergency shortly after performing afternoon traffic control at Bonner Elementary School in Lufkin, Texas. He collapsed at about 4.10 p.m. after completing the assignment. He had served the Hudson Independent School District for 10 years and has served in law enforcement for 31 years. He had pre previously served with the Angelina County Sheriff's Office and uh, Angelina County Constable's Office. Officer Brian Holly, Hudson Independent School District Police Department, Texas. End of watch Friday, August 18th, 2023. Each of these law enforcement officers gave their lives in the line of duty while they served and protected. May they rest in peace. The war on cops is very real. Um, as of the first of uh, of this month of August, uh, 226 American law enforcement officers were shot in the line of duty. That's an astounding number. It literally is one every single day. In addition to that, the number of assaults, the number of assaults by firearms, by knives, by uh, vehicles, is ever increasing. Last year, more than 60,000 American law enforcement officers were physically assaulted in the line of duty. Um, and those are the physical assaults. I'm not even going to be talking about the emotional issues and the psychological issues that these officers face literally every single day. And that's why the Wounded Blue exists. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. So I want to bring in my guest, and, and it, it, this is very, the fact that, that he's here today, and he's in studio, which is fantastic because I love to do actual true interaction. Um, 
he's I'm well I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, okay sit down relax I'm gonna read you his <laughs> he's got more letters behind his name all right Lewis his real name is Von Kleem uh, MCJJDLLM I don't even know what those stands for okay but I'm gonna I'm gonna read his bio um, with over 30 years uh, in the criminal justice profession, Vaughn worked as a civilian police officer, attorney, educator, and author. He was senior policy uh, attorney for Lexapol and is currently the director of consulting and executive editor at Force Science. He is also the CEO of Force Science. You've got to update your stuff here. Okay. Fair as a litigation consultant, Vaughn is involved in some of the most high-profile use of force cases in the United States and internationally. His team evaluates police practices, policy law, and human factors in police decision-making and performance. As a nationally recognized use of force expert, Vaughn has presented training for the FBI Leads Program, the U.S. Marshals, the American Council of Second Amendment Lawyers, the Use of Force Summit, the U.S. Attorney's Criminal Investigation Division, and countless local, state, and federal law enforcement officers, police executives, and attorneys. As a lawyer, Vaughn worked as a senior prosecutor, police legal advisor, senior policy attorney, military magistrate, special assistant U.S. attorney, operational law attorney, intelligence law attorney, domestic operational law attorney. Wow. In addition... <laughs> To use of force law and constitutional policing, Vaughn specialized in the response investigation and prosecution of family violence and sexual assault cases. As an Army judge advocate, retired, Vaughn was recognized as an expert military justice practitioner and highly sought after police practices, investigations, and use of force legal expert. As a member of the Army staff, he supported some of the Pentagon's top attorneys and helped draft DOD and Army use of force policy. Vaughn is a graduate of the 17-week Force Science Advanced Specialist course and the Fletzy Police Legal Advisors Training Program. He holds a Bachelor's in Crime and Delinquency Studies, a Master's in Criminal Justice Administration, a Law Degree, and a Master's in Law Postgraduate Degree. Now I know what all those letters stand for. Vaughn is licensed to practice law in Virginia and Kansas, and he is also a great friend. Vaughn, thank you for so much. <laughs> thank you for sharing that, and uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me again, Randy. Okay, so I know that that I saw your your eyebrows raised when I when I read how one of these officers lost their lives in the line of duty in a training accident. You know, we're talking about use of force. And, and these are, so I, I think, I can't think of anything more heartbreaking than being killed by, quote, friendly fire, unquote. Yeah, right. And, and you know, the training of our officers across the nation, this is something you're, you're deeply, heavily involved in. In fact, you are in Las Vegas right now because of a, because of a training um, session that you are participating in. Right. But, you know... After reading your your um, your bio, I think that, that that the listeners and the viewers can get a pretty good uh, idea of your level of expertise. What is it that brings you to Las Vegas? Because I this was such a so impressive to me and such an important 
um, avenue that that uh, you're exploring because it literally affects the entire criminal justice system of the United States. Yeah, so what we're here is for the American for Effective Law Enforcement, the AELE conference, and it's actually an expert witness symposium. Uh, what is unique about this is the the top experts in the country are sitting 20 minutes away from here right now at this symposium. And it's, it's impressive to look around and see who's there. And some of them have been doing this for 30 plus years. There's attorneys in there who've been doing it 30 plus years. And we're talking about the top specialists in use of force investigations, um, police practice investigations. And the uh, there's some new ones in there who are just getting started. And then there's the, the old school veterans who have 400 plus cases to their name. Uh, what is impressive about that conference right now is they are uh, – you were sitting in a room with just lifetime learners, the guys who are coming off the podium uh, with decades of experience analyzing cases, sit right back down with the class. And if you look around, um, any one of these members of this, of this audience could stand up and be presenting at this conference. It's truly impressive. Now, what we're doing here at Force Science is at the end of the conference, we are sponsoring a, uh, an expert witness roundtable. So what we've done is we've identified 10 of some of the not just top experts in the country, but the ones who are currently uh, still working cases. They're still getting in the courtroom. And what we're finding is we're all battling the same the same fight right okay, now. Okay, before we go into that, oh. I'd like you to explain what Force Science is and what it does, because it's, um, it's a very unique company, and the work that it does... <laughs> is absolutely essential but but very very different and it's and you know for for the lay person and even for some of those in law enforcement um understanding what for science is and what it does is critical so that you, you know the the audience can understand what exactly what we're talking about here sure first science i mean our, our our standard line is we are we are helping people understand force encounters through science and research so dr bill lewinsky um, about almost four decades ago, looked around and realized that police use of force cases were being evaluated without the benefit of understanding human performance issues. The same things we would see in sports, the same things we see in traffic investigations, uh, the action reaction, the decision making processes. Uh, the police were not getting the benefit of that research. And so what Dr. Lewinsky did was he started pulling from multiple disciplines, um, from, from you know astronauts and pilots and uh, people driving cars, uh, engineers. What is it that those industries were doing to prepare their, those performers to do their jobs effectively in critical incidents and in time compressed circumstances that can often become part of those, part of those professions? He brought that in. He was the first to do that. He was recently uh, recognized as a Hall of Famer uh, for the National Law Enforcement Hall of Fame uh, as a lifetime trainer. Um, he has probably single-handedly changed the way law enforcement looks at use of force training, use of force investigations. Um, he's just he's this absolute godfather of, of modern police training in that regard. So what we're doing now is we're trying to steward the work that he's done. We're trying to look at all the other disciplines um, the, that have done research, and we're trying to see where does that apply to what police are doing. Now, why this becomes critically important, right now there's a big call for police accountability, and we think that's a good thing. But when we look at police accountability, there's two main things we're looking at. Um, and it can be summed up as we never let them forget there's a human involved in that process, in that decision-making and performance process. So what force science is doing is is two things. One, we're looking at the standards that are being applied to police officers, and we ask ourselves, are those standards so vague? Do they need further de 
definition because if they're too vague, you cannot hold an officer accountable if they can't predict the lawfulness of their own behavior in advance. That's the first thing. We want accountability, but we want honest accountability. We don't want corrupt accountability. We, we don't want politicized accountability. We want to ensure every time you are evaluating a police officer, you are evaluating a human with the with the unique capabilities of a human and also the limitations. Let, let's, let, let me explore that a little deeper. So <clears throat> what we have seen in, especially since the, the, the George Floyd era, we've seen very, very emotional and political prosecutions of police officers around this country for use of force. I mean, it is literally, we, we've actually seen what I believe to be, um, you know, witch hunts when it comes down to holding the police. I, 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 that word "accountable" is 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 a vague is a vague term, and it's thrown around a lot by politicians. They never want to be held accountable, yeah. but they want to hold the police accountable for actions that take place. And the 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 critical part of of what you do is you bring science into the equation rather than just the emotional hey let's show 15 seconds of videotape and prosecute this police officer and that's why what you're doing is such an important uh, an, an important element to to this conversation yeah and i think you hit the second promise the first one is those standards can't be so vague that you can't predict the lawfulness of your own behavior. The second standard is you can't have expectations on an officer that is beyond human performance capabilities, right? So that's where force science is unique. Force science is looking at what are humans capable of doing in critical incidents? What can be reasonably expected? What can they remember? What will they expected to see? How will they be expected to perform? Um, and then to take those those skills and not, not just limitations, but actually the, the advancement of, of the, the human mind and throw that down to the front end into training, right? Into policy development and training. How do we better prepare officers based on that science? So what's, I think, critically important about understanding force science is force science is not an individual um, science. Like, you're not a force science expert, right? But what force science is, it's a compilation of all of the disciplines that will apply to policing, right? So, yes, accountability, by the way, force science is 100% behind accountability. We will, we will tell you it's honest accountability. Non accountability to us simply means explain why you did what you did, right? And so, but what we're seeing, to your point, is we're seeing what I would call either corrupt accountability or, or politicized accountability. It is not truly looking at the, the human involved in that process. Now, I would also say to your other point, we're involved, we've been involved in a lot of the high profile cases in the country over the last uh, three years or so. And Dr. Lewinsky himself was involved in many more prior to that time. But what we've noticed, and I will make this point very clear, what we see when we open those case files, those cases look nothing like what's being portrayed on TV, mm. right? So when, when you talk about a media portrayal or a, the politicians who stand up to describe the case and the outrage and they're stirring up that emotion you talked about, what is probably one of the most, uh, you know, one of the saddest aspects of doing this is when you get that case file, you realize a lot of these people are absolutely manufacturing those facts. And they're stirring up outrage and we're watching cities burn we're watching people get murdered on the back end of this outrage we get the case file and we're looking at it going okay the facts as 
as relayed to the public look nothing like the actual case. And I will tell you that is every single case we've looked at yet so far. That's really frightening because what, what <clears throat> in a lot of different ways, first of all, it dehumanizes police officers. It basically says, we really don't care about the, the, about the human behind that badge. Yeah. We're looking for a, a, po a political outcome or a, um, uh, a philosophical outcome that, that we don't care about the, the truth involved here. So that's why what, you're, what you do and, what, and, and those that are in your field are trying to level the playing field, basically, trying to bring some sense of reasonableness and protect the truth. But yet the, the, the political powers that are, that are um, heavily involved in the prosecutions of this, of, of the, the officers throughout the nation are literally, um, they're, they're, they're fixing the deck. Yeah. Against the against the police. Now, part let, of what let me make a point to that real quick. Okay. I think it's important. So we when we enter these cases, we have to be the most reasonable people in the room. And this is the guidance I give to my staff. We are these are nuanced cases. They're very fact specific, um, and you are tempted to look at what could be a hyper politicized case where they're putting facts out that simply don't reflect the reality of the case and think, well, these guys are corrupt, they're politicized, they have an agenda. What I've learned, though, is there isn't a single motive that's behind a lot of the misrepresentation and disinformation that's put out there. Um, some of these people truly believe that what they saw on that video reflects absolutely corrupt and abusive policing. They truly believe it's, it's racist, abusive, corrupt cops out there who are targeting minority populations. And they will drive their investigation and drive their prosecutions uh, with that through that lens. But what we find is, and this is encouraging, when we sit down with prosecutors or we sit down with, with the attorneys and with community groups, even with activists, even with politicians, most of them, I would say this, I think, I think I, this is a fair statement. Most of them have this aha moment where they're going, I had no idea. Mm. So when they see for science action reaction demonstrations, and I, I encourage everybody, if you haven't, I just wrote an article in for science news on uh, the failure of common sense. And w what that article opens up with is a plaintiff's attorney made the comment that it is common sense that a police officer looking down the sight of a rifle can pull the trigger before a suspect can move, aim, and fire a gun. Now, anyone familiar with our research, and not just our research, the research on those points will know that statement of common sense is might be common sense, but it is absolutely incorrect. And so what we did was we partnered with Vertra, which is a, uh, a high-end simulation company, and we asked them to recreate that situation where the suspect in the simulator would have a gun pointed at his head and be able to turn and fire at the officer. We brought in a, a highly skilled uh, former SWAT officer and we stacked the deck in the officer's favor. We said, it's gonna be a simple decision. All you gotta do is as soon as they move, we want you to pull, take the gun off safety and pull the trigger. It was, uh, we did not accelerate the speed of the assault. Uh, we typically will see speeds of assault about a quarter of a second. Um, in this case, the, the simulated suspect uh, assault was 0.4 seconds, so almost twice that, right? Um, so we were not trying to, we were trying to stack the deck in the favor of the officer. And the theory was, if this officer cannot overcome the action of the suspect, 
we cannot reasonably expect uh, officers with less training than that and less experience to do so. So we're trying to manage expectations. What we find when we do that, when we, when we write about these issues, identify the issues, write the issues, introduce our research and the research of other great researchers out there, we bring that to bear. But then we partner with folks like Virtra and we say, let's show them, mm -hmm. right? I, I commend you to read that article. It's for Science News, um, The Failure of Common Sense. Um, and then, then we want to take it one step further, and you know this. When we teach attorneys or we're teaching students, ideally, you're going to hear me talk about what the rules are. You're going to hear me talk about what our research shows relative to that rule, what the timestamps are, how fast somebody can assault you, and how fast you can respond. And then we're going to show you in an animation, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to see it. And then we're going to show you a real-life example. So all of this becomes real. It's not just an academic exercise. But then ideally, when we partner with Virtua, we're going to say, now get in the simulator. Now we want you to feel what it's like to face an armed assault and you respond to it. And we're going to tell you, you can't shoot him in the back, right? You, you can't shoot till you see the gun. You can't shoot until uh, you are 100% certain it's a weapon in their hand and not a cell phone. We add all the realities, the things that cops are facing on the street, and our politicians, and our students, and our professors, and our community members start to actually now feel what that's like, mm -hmm. and the speed of that assault, and the, the limitations of response. And they freeze. You should see the looks on it. Like when, <laughs> when they shoot somebody in the back, and they're like, and they're like, there was no way you could have avoided that, right? Because the, the, the suspect in that scenario, he gets the turn too, he gets a vote as well. So that's a lot to say that. I, we're really careful not to paint everybody with the same brush, but every single person who we do engage with, whether they, if they have a corrupt motive, it, nothing we do is going to change that. But there's a massive group of them out there who we can influence, and that's that's who we're trying to reach. I understand what you're saying because um, <clears throat> those that 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 have the agenda already, yeah, they're not you're you're not gonna you're not gonna change their their opinions or their minds. But for but what you have found is that there is a, a, a very large part of that population that's involved in these litigations and these, these, these uh, court proceedings that are simply, their mindset is out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and what you, that scenario that you just pointed out with the gun at the head and then the assault, that's very, very real. This is happening. This is happening. Uh, not on an infrequent basis. In fact, there is a police officer right now who is who is on trial for murder based on that exact scenario. Yeah. Well, we, we, we're going to be very careful, too. Again, we're going to be the smartest, most nuanced people in the room in our areas, we hope. Uh, we would never send a message that if somebody is, is suicidal with a gun, you get to shoot them, right? We right. know that if they decide to shoot you, they can move faster and you can respond. Uh, certainly a fast cop can outshoot a slow suspect, but at the end of the day, all things being equal, your response is never going to be as fast as their as their action, right? Right. But, but remember, when we're analyzing threats, cops are still out there going, well, does that guy have the intent, the ability, the means, and the opportunity? Simply having a gun doesn't justify getting shot, sure. right? And I know there's going to be people out there who want to interpret what we say that way. That's why I'm being very clear. And so we, we constantly are like, if you understand the speed of, of assault, um, that means as a cop, you know when you're up at that, that, that B pillar on the car, 
Um, if you think that guy has a gun or he can access a weapon, you probably shouldn't be there because if you've looked at the research, you understand if that guy decides to point that gun at you, it's about a quarter of a second on average. You're not going to break leather, get your gun out and be able to respond anywhere from you know a second and a half or longer or yeah 1.7 or longer seconds right on average um you're not going to win that right so what we're saying and what force science continues to harp on is once you understand the speed of assault and the limitations of your response mm -hmm. now tactically set yourself up for success that's where if you can we create space we buy time we use shielding and cover um we have multiple officers at the scene there are things you can do to increase your tactical advantage when you are aware of the disadvantage you're in from an action reaction standpoint. So it's never shoot first, ask questions later. Um, it is anticipation of the threats, recognition of the reality of those speeds, and then do things tactically that would mitigate the suspect's advantage. Um, and now having say that, we've all worked the street. There are circumstances where you're gonna be there facing an imminent threat and deadly force is absolutely the first thing that needs to happen, right? So I, we, we gotta take a, a, a quick break and then I wanna talk about about training and how critical training is to this entire discussion. Absolutely. So let's take a quick break. Be right back. and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee, patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, uh, very, very 
good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to onenationcoffee.com, order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the Wounded Blue. So uh, go to onenationcoffee.com. So I want to talk to you about officerprivacy.com. What is it? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it is an officer safety option. Um, many of us don't know the extent that our identities can be and personal information can be found on the internet. I was unaware of it until, uh, until Officer Privacy contacted me and said, hey, Randy, <laughs> it's really easy to find you, your house, what you drive and and of course as as a law enforcement officer that's a big that's a big deal to me you know for off-duty survival is really truly important so what officer privacy does is this is a, a law enforcement um uh, owned company that only employs uh prior law enforcement and current law enforcement officers to do the actual work but they'll go into the internet and they'll find references where your identity is is being suborned and they'll remove it they they will actually scrub the internet and find ways to protect you now as whether you're a current law enforcement officer or have been retired um this is this is something that should concern you now what's really cool it's not expensive they do great work they keep you updated all the time and uh, I, I urge you to go to officerprivacy.com and, uh, and, and see what they offer, see that uh, the importance of what it is. Because remember, every aspect of, of law enforcement, health and safety is what we talk about on this show. Now, the, so go to officerprivacy.com. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is a nationwide charity that's helped more than 14,000 police officers in the last four and a half years. That's an astounding number. Now, we recognize injuries as being either physical or emotional and psychological. And the, the, the psychological and emotional injuries of law enforcement officers is absolutely through the roof. Um, you know, we are very, very involved in suicide prevention uh, for law enforcement officers. We can't do it without the support of the people of this nation. This is a charity. So I urge you to go to thewoundedblue.org. Hit that donate button. Do 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, whatever it is that you can afford, a one-time donation. If you, are a, if you are a company that wants to sponsor the Wounded Blue or what we have coming up in September. So if you're law enforcement, I want you to listen to this really carefully. Our third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit is coming up September 26th through the 29th 
here in Las Vegas at the fabulous Ahern Hotel. Vaughn is actually a speaker at this at this conference. It is every aspect of surviving a law enforcement career, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. There's nothing like it. And uh, I urge you, if you are law enforcement or prior law enforcement, and you're still carrying around um, you know, a lot of the concerns that, that you develop when you're, when you're a cop, please think about coming to this. It's not expensive. It's 295 bucks. That includes your breakfast and your lunch. We have great entertainment uh, on the first night. We got Vinny Montez, incredible comedian and a cop, uh, who's going to be performing on the last night. We've got the number one ACDC tribute band going to be performing uh, in a fundraiser for the Wounded Blue. So check out thewoundedblue.org, register there, and come to the third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. So, Vaughn, come on back in here. And you, I know that you are also very, very involved in the, in the wellness aspect of of law enforcement so if you would talk about that briefly then we're going to go back into i uh, really want to talk about the training aspect yeah absolutely so there's a couple things we're doing at force science and and thanks for thanks for segueing into that because i did have an, an important experience i was a crisis counselor before i was a police officer and and i saw how we were treating victims in sexual assault cases and then i saw how we were treating cops in in critical incident cases and i realized we had a lot of stuff we were doing in the civilian world that we had not yet adopted in in law enforcement and this was the early 90s um, when i started recognizing this stuff so over the course of my career we've done or i've been involved in various efforts to bring at least some awareness to how we're treating cops in the process. Now, what we noticed in sexual assault cases was that we'd ask a victim of sexual assault, what's been the hardest part of this experience for you? And they would say the investigation, not the sexual assault, which was at first you, you a little taken back. We see the exact same thing with police involved in critical incidents. They can be involved in the most uh, life-threatening situation in their life. And what they're saying was the hardest part was the betrayal they felt. It was the way they were treated after the critical incident. It was being isolated from their support systems that they had developed over the years. It was one of the ways uh, Nicole Floris and I, who teach this, will be at the Wounded Blue teaching. Um, we sort of look at how the process itself is being inadvertently used to re-victimize officers, right? right, or traumatize officers. And one of the things we, we've highlighted is we have helped you build an avatar of yourself, one of being a hero and the good guy and the truth teller. And you're part of a tribe of, of people who run towards the gunfire and we trust you. You're the best among us. Right. And then as soon as you're involved in a critical incident, we take your gun. We isolate you in the back of a patrol car. We require you to have an escort. You can't even go back to your own department without being walked around. You're stripped of your gear. So you are literally losing all the symbols of your identity. Right. Um, and it's happening like this fast. And so what we're trying to do is draw awareness to the process, how the process itself, the investigative process needs to be uh, massaged, needs to be maybe in some places completely reformed in an effort to avoid victimizing or traumatizing officers in that process. So thanks for having us. Nicole Florisi and I will be there. We're going to talk about the, the system itself and how we might, some of the ideas we've seen on how to avoid that trauma. Uh, the other thing we're doing at Force Science is uh, John Azar Dickens has developed a program. Uh, as far as I know, it's one of the first of its kind, but it's Officer Wellness and Resiliency Program where the cops get to bring their families, right? So I'm not going to steal uh, John Azar Dickens' thunder. What I'd like people to do is go to the website, look at the Officer Safety or the Officer uh, Wellness and Resilience Program, John Azar Dickens. It's at the uh, 
forcescience.com under the under the training tab. It's a 16-hour program. You get to bring your families and that awareness of what the officers can expect in the course of their career and very, very specific things they can be doing to, one, build resiliency on the front end, but then also know how to take care of themselves so when they're involved in that critical incident, they know how to mitigate the effects of those critical incidents. What they anticipate is probably one of the most important things. Right. So uh, check that out. Um, I think officer wellness is going to be, along with de-escalation, I think the next few years in law enforcement industry, that's where the focus is going to be, and I think it needs to be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things that when I speak to police leadership groups, um, I ask this question. I ask, I ask them to raise their hands. I said, who here in this leadership who are chiefs and sheriffs and, and high-ranking officers, who here, when a, when a police officer commits a serious act of misconduct, places them on administrative leave? Mm -hmm. And virtually every hand goes up. I said, fine. Now, who in this room, when a police officer has a, criti a critical use of force, a shooting incident, something where, where, there's a, where there's a critical incident, how many place them on administrative leave? And you can see them looking at each other and they kind of, they kind of do that. If... If we could just as and, and and why this is even why this is such a difficult concept for leadership to uh, to to um, uh, envelop, call it critical incident leave. Mm. Call it something that's not going to equate with something negative. Right. And yet, it's like pulling teeth. Police leadership. I got to tell you, police leadership is 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 for for me. They're, they're trying to move a sh it's like trying to move a big ship and they're, they're it's it's very disappointing to see sometimes the law enforcement leadership in this country yeah well I I try especially to especially with the way that they treat their own cops yeah well it's frustrating for us so we do this for a living we get to look at these cases every day and we're looking at it from the 35,000 foot lens and then when we get when we catch a case fire we're looking at it from the from maybe the five meter lens right we're, we're getting in a little more fidelity what I try to give grace to the sheriffs and the chiefs out there is they have a thousand five meter targets they've got to navigate. And so when one of these critical incidents, we want to help them build the processes necessary on the front end so they don't have to think about it. So right. when it happens, we've sensitized them to here's the things that you should be sensitive to relative to the treatment of the officer. Words matter. Right. You and, and if you want to strip them of their identity, if you want to associate them with criminal suspects, if you want to put them on admin leave the same way you do with a cop who just wrecked his car, um, <laughs> that that's going to matter. That's going to have an impact. So I think once we sensitize them to those things and we help them develop the policies and, and the processes that should be triggered from a critical incident, most of them that I meet would would welcome the help. They don't do what we do. They don't look at these issues from the psychological lens. They don't look at it from a trauma lens. They're still worried about dealing with their, their civic leadership. They're worried about the employment law issues. They're worried about crime reduction. They have a million things to think about. So I, I try to give most of them grace um, until they convince us they don't deserve it. Okay, I'm going to tell you a personal story. Yeah. Well, I'm going to illustrate this. <laughs> so I've been involved in, in several um, critical uses of force, several shootings. And on th this particular one that I'm going to bring up, um, I was involved in a, in, in uh, the takedown of a of a, uh, a gang member on a multi kilo buy, and it turned into a shooting. And uh, like you said, I was isolated. I was literally, you know, my gun was taken from me. I was put in a van, and it was it was a van that was it was a surveillance van. 
Um, so the sheriff at the time didn't know that he was literally standing outside of the window where I was watching him talk to another law enforcement leader about me. About you, right? Yeah. And about how it was it was really, really ugly. And it really um it 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 completely undermined any trust that I would ever have in my police administration. And this is not an unusual set of circumstances. Yeah. yeah. And it's the it's the thousand cuts sometimes too. I remember the uh I was involved in a traffic accident and was a pretty serious accident on duty. And several days later, um, I'm in the I'm in the watch commander's office listening to them talk about me and how I was a rookie. And they're like, rookies need to slow down. They can't. They got to start paying attention. And and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I was I was at a standstill when I got hit. <laughs> like they had the story wrong, and they were so willing to indict me on the yeah, spot and yeah. to tell anybody who was willing to listen. I don't know why that culture exists, but it's certainly we've all experienced it. And then uh, I'd gotten complained on one time, and the 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 lady just manufactured the facts and I, you know, that happens with such frequency. You just, right. you kind of let it blow off. But the Sergeant says, well, did you say these things? And I said, no, I didn't. Um, I would never say those things. And it certainly didn't this time. And he goes, well, how do I know that if it wasn't recorded? And I remember thinking the offense I took at that. I was sure. like, because I said so like, yeah, like right. you, you screened me, you hired me, you trained me, <laughs> presumably you did a background. Um, how about I get a presumption of regularity, the benefit of the doubt in this situation? Like, it, from his perspective, if it wasn't recorded, I had no, I had no credibility otherwise. And I thought, I mean, forget it, it was a silly story, but the idea, the impact it had on me at the time yeah. was very real. Now right. imagine that a critical incident, yeah. right? Where it's amplified, where you, you've put your life on the line for the department and for the community. And uh, there's not even a presumption of regularity or benefit of the doubt. We say that when we're asked about our bias in our consulting division, they say, do you have a police bias? I said, I don't think we have a bias, but we certainly have a presumption of regularity. And I think it's a reasonable inference based on the fact that we we recruited these people. We did backgrounds on them. We screened them. We trained them. We supervised them. If we can't do all of those and at least give them a presumption of regularity and a benefit of the doubt until the evidence shows something else, then then the problem lies in us. Who are we who are we hiring that we can't give them at least that much deference? So that would be the limits of my bias towards police is they do get the benefit of the doubt and the presumption of regularity. We could literally talk about this topic forever. I love having this conversation, but I want to get back to training for a moment. I want to get back to, you know, you were, you were talking with in great depth about, um, you know, the, the science behind these use of force decisions mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the, the tactics that, that need to be employed. But we're seeing around the country, it's really difficult to get the budgets to train our people properly. I mean, how many, how many law enforcement agencies around the country, once they go through their, their initial recruit training, you know, when they're in the academy, et cetera, and so forth, some will have a field training actual field training program some will not right. but then very often their training as they go through their career is minimal and yet to to try and 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 move forward with much more strategic training for our officers is is it's it's not happening or it, at least it's not happening with the regularity that we need it what's your what's your viewpoints on on 
you know, the, the, the limitations placed on the training by these agencies and then holding them accountable for something that they've never even been trained for. Yeah. So, so I think historically we have traditional law enforcement training and some people call it block and silo training. It's, it's where you teach a subject one day and then you're not going to see it again for the rest of the academy until you're tested on it, maybe at the end. Uh, so you teach one subject, then one subject, then one subject. This is just what I call efficient training, right? We're trying to move to effective training. So regardless of your budget, regardless of how many hours you have to teach, the minimum is that whatever it is you are teaching, at least you teach that to be effective. That's the first step. You have to know how, you have to know the science of learning. How do people learn and are we doing that? Or are we just checking the box? Now, there's too much evidence that agencies have historically been just checking the box and it's and we have amazing trainers out there the most dedicated people in law enforcement are become trainers right so we have amazing people and when they come force science has just developed uh in in conjunction with uh chris butler from up in canada uh mike misango chris butler and mike misango uh in the force science was with force science um expert input as well have built this MOI course, the Methods of Instruction course, and that is a course about the science of learning, regardless of the subject. So right now, I would encourage people, first of all, learn how people learn, get get to the MOI course. As far as I know, it's the only course of its kind out there. Um, if, you're, if you're still training the old block and silo ways, or you just don't even know about the science of learning, that is your first step. Get to the MOI course, um, invest in your agency up front. Now, back to your point, it doesn't matter what you're teaching or how many dollars you have, at least what you are teaching, do it correctly, right? Now the creativity of, of what needs to be trained and how to train, part of the MOI, part of the science of learning is this concept of, of interleaving, right? So if we have a block of time, and I mean, many of us saw this in the 90s, if you were teaching some communications program, verbal judo or verbal defense and influence uh, a little bit later, whatever it happens to be, um, our force science realistic de-escalation courses, these are courses uh, where we integrate tactics and communication, right? But we can do more than that. When we're talking about the integration of training and trying to use, get the most out of the hours you have, then interleaving is this idea that we're going to bring in all these disciplines into one training event. And we're going to do it as fast as possible. We want to get fidelity and realism into the training environment as fast as possible, right? right. So when we're talking about uh, simulation training, okay, back to virtual stuff, if you're doing a simulation training, why aren't you also simultaneously working your tourniquet skills? Why aren't you working your communication skills? It's just not react, action, reaction, shoot, don't shoot, decision-making. You've got to integrate all these other disciplines. So when we're doing realistic decision-making training, right, real-world realistic decision-making training, um, we should always, always be incorporating communications with dispatch, communications with back officers, your, your uh, first aid, your de-escalation, as well as your decision-making, right? We don't we don't see that often enough. Too often we're seeing block and silo. Today we're going to talk about verbal judo. Tomorrow we're going to talk about use of force. And if you're if you're a, a cross-trained instructor, you're going to see all these opportunities. Like we should really be doing yeah, communication right. at this point, not just not just our straight armbar technique. Or you know, Chad Lyman hates the straight armbar technique. So whatever your 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 arm drag technique happens to be. Uh, so. So that's one way we're looking at it is how how do they get smarter about the hours they do have now training dollars getting i mean we all know there's a lot of money out there the 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 federal government has a lot of money and what we need to do as an industry is we need to start calling for that money in the areas where we where we need to see it right now we know it's kind of specialty trainings out there we got some 
some, you know, maybe de-escalation is a big one right now. A lot of dollars yes. for de-escalation. A lot of dollars for officer wellness and, and resilience. So we're, we're really happy to see that. Um, those dollars need to be put where the officers need them, right, into pursuit driving and, and into uh, action-reaction studies and into uh, uh, our medical training. I mean, how many, how many officers are really getting tactical combat casualty care type stuff uh, or whatever the latest, you know, uh, forgive me, I don't know the latest medical procedure, but for me it's TCCC type stuff. Are we seeing that? Are we using the federal dollars? Are we using the dollars we have available um, in the areas that the law enforcement industry wants it? Because we, we can all name the programs we've been forced to take over the last right. few years. Right. Um, so we know the money's there. It's just a matter of whether the industry stands up and starts, starts looking to put it against the right needs. I, I want to ask you something. I want to kind of get off a little bit on, on what force science does and from your from your learned point of view and your years of experience i want to talk about um recruitment and retention yeah. okay we're seeing a crisis in in law enforcement mm -hmm. and and i'm not seeing anything on the horizon that is looking like we're going to get like it's going to be changing anytime soon you know i, I there used to be if 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 the Las Vegas Metro gave a police test. 5,000 people showed up for possibly 100 jobs. Right. In New York, 30,000 people showed up for, for 1,000 jobs, right? Now we're seeing 1,000 people showing up for 1,000 jobs. And so what, what we have seen is New York City Police Department just removed their physical fitness requirement. Los Angeles Police Department just ended their physical fitness requirement, and we're seeing, you know, uh, around the around the country, a, a very often a diminishment of standards. Now, as you're deeply involved in 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 the the, the responses of police officers when they are now thrown into that critical incident that that almost every cop is going to face sometime throughout their career. And if they aren't, if we're not hiring the right people, the people that, um, that you want to give the inference to that, that they're, that they're, that they know what they're doing, that they're competent. How are we going to move forward in this country in law enforcement? Yeah, that's a lot. Um, it is. It is a lot. Uh, I, I just threw a lot at you. Yeah. No. I think it's okay. We are, we're always thinking deeply about this, and we can have this. We can theorize together and speculate because we want to get after this. Um, let me start this way. If you want people to sign up for the job, you're going to have to cast a very different vision of what that job is. Right now, the applicant pool is being force-fed uh, that cops are racist, abusive, and corrupt on the one hand, and those kids who want to consider themselves good people don't want to join that. They've been convinced that's what it is. They don't want to join it. On the other hand, the ones who don't believe that narrative are also seeing simultaneously that the government in a lot of cities and the own agencies are not backing the officers. They are, they were, you know, crying for defunding the police. They were, they were crying for uh, prioritizing social justice issues over traditional law and order and crime reduction issues um, and, and priorities. And so, if you are the guy who really wants to lean forward and be that that servant servant leader yeah. wants to be that, that guardian of their community wants to be that warrior when it's time to stand up against evil and against uh you know violence if that's who you want to be you're looking at it and going yeah this 
this is not where I want to do that. This is not the 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 uh, the chapter of American history where that makes sense. My son's a cop. He just got off with his FTO. So you're asking somebody who 100% believes that the the job itself is still critically important to do. Uh, I helped my son pick the agency, and we looked at the, the how much support the civic leaders were giving their police. We were looking at how did the chief of police in that city support its police officers? Mm -hmm. Did they did they are they still prioritizing officer safety and wellness? as a component of public safety, right? And so we, we handpicked an agency that he ended up working for, and I think, I think it's fantastic. I think he's doing a great job. And even that agency, to some degree, has really embraced sort of a, taking a half a step back from law enforcement. Mm -hmm. well, and, and, and I think as yeah. a leader in law enforcement, you'd be unwise not to, not to, I think, adjust and fine tune your approach during these discussions. I think you have to do that. But at some point, the pendulum's gotta swing back and we're going to have to start prioritizing crime reduction again. We have to start prioritizing, uh, you know, rule of law again, uh, traditional law and order interest again. I think this is this would be Vaughn. Okay, Clean's so this position. is this is where I want to pivot in just the last few minutes that we have. Yeah. Um, the district attorneys around the United States. Yeah. More than sixty of them, I think seventy of them now, have been put into into place through George Soros money and and a, an agenda driven. Uh, anti-law enforcement um, concept. You're, one of the things you're in town for is to combat that. Talk about that for, for the last few minutes that we have. Yeah, so I think I had any awareness to it. I'm not, I think if you look, again, going back to my, I can't paint everybody with the same brush idea. There are people who have prioritized social justice issues. That means we just want to reduce the population of, of our prisons. We just want to reduce the, the percentage and the racial disparities we see in the criminal justice system. They have, they have really lofty goals, and those are their priorities. And so if you are, if you are going out there and arresting somebody, well, you, they have just intersected the criminal justice system. You have a choice. You can either put them into jail and get them a criminal record, and then all the consequences that flow from that, all the things that might impede their ability to get a job later. That's what you're thinking about. So let's not arrest them is the theory. Then you got the other side going, yeah, but at the point where they've committed the crime, my audience or my client is society at large. It's not that individual. I've got to do the most good for the most people most of the time. And so this traditional law and order interest is, is it's rule of law driven. It's the most good for society at large. And the individual officer is not concerning themselves with the second and third effects on that individual. So that's those are competing visions. So when you have these prosecutors are coming in and they're saying we want to decriminalize life in the inner city. So if, if and that means we're going to decriminalize traffic offenses, we're going to decriminalize drug offenses, we're going to decriminalize uh, public drunkenness offenses, things that are have become the culture of an inner city. Uh, I think it's an immature inner city culture that 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 sort of. If you look at the conduct, and I'll just say culture, I'll leave it there. Um, it It is one is often isn't driven by rule of law, right? Right. So it's easy, you know, as well as I do. We can go in there, we can write tickets all day. And so the people we're writing tickets to, on the one hand, we're saying, stop committing the crime. But the other side's looking and going, no one's taught them to not commit crimes. You know, they didn't have the infrastructure necessary to teach them not to do those things. Now we think, well, how do you not know you don't speed? How do you know you don't shoplift? And when you, when you get into the culture of the inner city, a lot of times you start to realize because their parents weren't your parents, mm -hmm. right? Their uncle's not yours. So I think when you see some of these prosecutors coming in, some of them are really coming from what they think is a very noble place. Now, the consequence is one of anti-police. What they have done, if you go too far to the left, 
what you've done is they said, we're going to look at it from a Marxist lens. We have the oppressor and the oppressed. Right. Cops are the oppressors and the criminals are the oppressed. Now, this has gone way too far. And so I think people equate George Soros and the Soros-backed prosecutors with that leftist kind of Marxist ideology where the criminal is actually the victim of an oppressive system. The right. criminals is a victim of the oppressive officer, and the officer is a symbol of that oppressive system. So for us, who we woke up and we thought, hey, I, I just wanted to be the good guy. Yeah. Like, I thought I was <laughs> exactly. out here to fight crime. And, and, and then you find out, no, no, you're actually the problem. You're the oppressor. That's an, that, is a, that is an absolute check on our identity, right? And, and how I say our avatar, the way we view ourselves. We're, we, don't, we should not be sitting back for that. Like, we should see clearly what's happening, and we should resist it. And then say, look, if you want to achieve these goals, the, the, the friends of mine that are liberals, I agree with their outcomes. I agree with the goals they want. The conversation needs to be how do we achieve them without demonizing right. the police? We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we've reached our time limit, Vaughn. How do people contact Force Science? Yeah, thank you. It's uh, Go to forcescience.com. It's F-O-R-C-E as in use of force, forcescience.com. And that's our website. You're going to see all of our division. We have a training division. We list all of our training. We have a research division. I run our uh, um, our consulting division, so I'm the director of consulting. Check out our training offerings, particularly the wellness and emotional resilience course. I really want to push that out. And our methods of instruction course right now, um, those are two really important um, innovations that we brought in. And then, of course, our flagship uh, certification course is a week long. And for those who really want to get an advanced deep dive, come join us for the 17-week, 300-plus hour um, advanced specialist course. That's, re that's not an easy course, so come to it, prepare it to work. But when you get done with it, you're going to have a very deep understanding of human performance in policing. Vaughn, thank you so much for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour. We'll see you again next episode.